0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. uh, As I said in the introduction, uh, life is really hard. Uh, The older I get, the more I realize that the Christian life is very hard, that we suffer hardships and we endure pain. Uh, We experience a wide variety of difficulties. James in chapter one says, don't be shocked. Uh, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Let me tell you, there are various kinds of trials. Uh, the Bible realizes, of course, that there's lots of different reasons for our pain. We live in uh, a, a, a cursed uh, creation that's broken and falling, and there's things like famines and tsunamis. Um, we, we live uh, and we get sick and, and eventually die, or we love people who get sick uh, and eventually die. Um, if you think about it, um, the, the sins of other people uh, hurt us. They really do hurt us in significant ways. Um, I'm growing, the older I get, the more I'm realizing how much my sin hurts other people. And I'm also beginning to be hurt myself by my own sin. And so that's painful. But one of the ways in which the Bible talks about us experiencing pain that we tend to not think about very much in the American church is that, is that every Christian has an opposition is that every Christian experiences persecution and affliction. So one of the reasons life is hard is because I have these things that I wanna do and I don't have the capacity to do them. I'm not God. Another way in which life is hard is that there are other beings outside of me, opposed to me, uh, looking to hinder me and stop me from doing what the real me wants to do in advancing Jesus' kingdom. And so if you think about it, there's a lot of reasons that life is hard, but rarely do we focus in on persecution and affliction and opposition in the American church. But it's in this book, 1 Thessalonians, that we've been studying. We've been referring to it over and over and over that Paul and Timothy and Silas entered into Thessalonica. They experienced incredible fruitfulness in the gospel. After three weeks, they were run out of town. Uh, The jealous Jews that chased them out of town chased them to two other cities and out of those cities. Uh, They heard later, uh, found out later, that while they were being chased out, uh, the new baby believers, the, the infant Christians in Thessalonica were being persecuted severely and even dying for their faith. And so I've been alluding to it. And this morning I thought we should just stop and focus on it. Uh, the passage from 1 Thessalonians that I'm gonna read is really long. In fact, it's a chapter and a half. It's all about Paul's absence from the Thessalonians. It's all about Paul's desire to be with the Thessalonians. It's all about Paul's inability to make his desire come true because he has Opposition. And so don't worry, we're not gonna try and cover all of the passage today. I will skip over massive sections of it. But in order to see this thread on opposition, I need you to see uh, this entire chapter and a half. And so that's the reason for the reading uh, being so long. So if you would please stand, we're gonna pray together a corporate prayer of illumination. And to the extent that you're able, I would ask for you to remain standing for the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, through the end of chapter 3 again, to the extent you're able, remain standing. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, Uh, most of the older translations will say they have persecuted us. It's the word for persecution. They displease God and they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered me. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that when we, excuse me, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when we could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word. Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Again, in case you just joined us during the reading of the text, we're not gonna study all the text. I I wanted you to see a particular thread, a particular theme that runs throughout the text. And that's the the theme of opposition. Uh, The Greek word in the New Testament behind the English word to persecute literally means, as it states in verse 15, to drive out or to expel. Uh, The Greek word behind the English word affliction in verse two, four, and seven of chapter three means to press or to hem in or to constrain. And so affliction and persecution in your English standard version, these two uh, Greek words most often used for the opposition we face, uh, the, the two words most often used in the Bible, they are in a sense the opposite of one another. Literally, affliction is stopping someone who doesn't want to stay. And persecution is driving someone out who doesn't want to go. And so in a literal, literal sense, they're actually the opposite of one another, but, but metaphorically and practically, they're the exact same. In both of them, someone outside of you is trying to keep you from doing what you want to do. And so this sermon is all about the opposition that Christians experience when they try to live for Jesus. The opposition, the adversity that we experience when trying to live for Jesus. Again, I can't unpack the whole passage, and I can't even show you everything in this passage about the opposition, but I want to show you three things. I want to show you that the opposition is absolutely inevitable in the Christian life. I want to show you that any opposition is fertile ground for temptation. And I want you to know that the outcome of the opposition is already established. So first, the opposition is absolutely inevitable in the Christian life, okay? If you look at your passage, Paul makes it really clear in verses three and four of chapter three that affliction was absolutely inevitable for the Thessalonians. Look look at the end of verse three. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, that is affliction. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. But not only the Thessalonians, the Bible teaches as a whole that opposition and persecution and the attacks from the enemy are absolutely inevitable for every Christian, for every genuine Christian. Not just in certain parts of the world at certain times, but every Christian in every time. Listen to just a few of the verses that I picked out. I made myself cut out like six or seven. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. It's the same word as affliction in our passage you will have pressing in in this world. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In the 14th chapter of the book of Acts, there's a summary of Paul and Barnabas' ministry. And I think it's Lystra and, and Iconium and Antioch, if memory serves correct. But in that summary, Luke tells us about their ministry throughout these cities in a couple of verses. And in verse 22 of chapter 14, uh, he says this, that, that Paul and Barnabas were catechizing the new believers in this fact. Through many tribulations, that is afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. Part of the basic training of new Christians in the New Testament is that opposition was absolutely inevitable. That a believer's path into paradise is a path through many, many, many afflictions. Listen to what Paul writes in Timothy. He, he writes to Timothy, his protege, in 2 Timothy 3. Uh, in case you're thinking that maybe these other verses only pertain to certain people, maybe we're thinking, well, Jesus, maybe what he said only applies to the disciples. And maybe what, Paul, uh, what Luke said about Paul, maybe that only applied to Asia Minor at that time. It certainly doesn't apply now. In, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul is talking to Timothy about the affliction that, that Timothy is going through, the persecution he's experiencing. And he says, it's not just the two of us who will be persecuted. He says this in verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I have never heard anyone say, my, my life verse is 2 Timothy 3, 12. <laughs> no one will cross-stitch frame and hang this verse on a wall. <laughs> I have not been to a Christian bookstore in a very long time. Since becoming a Christian. But I don't ever remember seeing... A motivational poster in the Christian bookstore of this verse. Indeed, surely, count on it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the same way that lightning is absolutely, inevitably followed by thunder. Genuine conversion to Christianity is absolutely, inevitably followed by opposition, attack, and affliction. Now, presuming that your response to this, uh, to this and these verses is the same as my response, um, presuming that you're experiencing some cognitive dissonance just like me, what do we do with this confusion created between what these verses say and what we've experienced? I don't believe, had we surveyed everybody when they came to the room, I, I don't believe that we, if we would have surveyed everyone with one question, if we asked everyone, are you under persecution right now? Do you expect in the near future to experience persecution? I don't believe many, if any of us, would have said yes. What if you're thinking, like I thought, I've never been opposed, afflicted, persecuted in my Christianity and for my Christianity. Does this mean I'm not converted? Does this mean that my Christianity is not genuine? What do we do with this cognitive dissonance? about what these verses say and what we know to be our experience. I I have three interrelated overlapping thoughts. I want you to keep them all in mind as you think about them, reflect upon them and discuss them in community. First thought, I want you to, by the way, there's no good screens today. I ran out of time. I don't even have an iPad up here. I'm just working off notes. So pray for us. (laughs) So I apologize. If you like to see it on the screen, it's not gonna be up there. So don't hold your breath. First thought, Remember that most of these verses I've read are promises about the future. Just because you're not aware of any opposition in the past or the present doesn't mean that you're not a genuine believer. Paul says in verse four, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Jesus says in John 15, they they will persecute you. John 16, you will have affliction. Paul told Timothy, all will be persecuted. You can't unhear what I just told you, but this may be your warning of something that's about to happen. Second thought. Maybe this is an indicator of the extent to which we're, quote, desiring to live a godly life. The most inclusive verse I read to you is Second Timothy three twelve. Paul doesn't just tell Timothy, Hey, it's me and you. It's just us suffering affliction. He says, All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. In our passage from 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3, uh, it indicates that Satan, the devil, uh, uh, the prince of darkness, the ultimate enemy of God, it indicates that he is in some way related to and connected to, in some degree, the instigator of all the opposition that you'll experience in your life. And while the opposition or the hindering can come from other humans, that's chapter two, verse 16, and while the opposition can come directly from Satan, that's chapter two, verse 18, Paul seems to indicate in chapter three, verse five, that Satan is involved in all of it. And so with that being said, remember, Satan is a finite created being with a particular number of beings in cahoots with him. It's a strong theological word, cahoots. (laughs) This means that Satan and his minions can't be everywhere all the time to oppose all Christians to the same degree. It stands to reason that Satan will oppose Christians directly or indirectly to the extent that they desire to live a godly life to the extent that they seek to live for Satan's enemy. That is Jesus. Satan can't pluck a Christian out of God's hand. Satan can't delete your name from the book of life, presuming that it was typed and not written with a pen. Uh, Satan cannot take you away from the love of God. But he will do everything he can directly or indirectly to discourage you and hinder you and thwart you and oppose you when you genuinely desire to live your call for God and others and not yourself. When you genuinely endeavor to share the gospel with other people, Satan is going to be there. When you have a genuine passion for justice and mercy and sacrificial love, Satan is going to be there. Our lack of experiencing opposition may tell us the extent to which we're truly desiring to live for God if Satan doesn't see us advancing Jesus' kingdom, if Satan doesn't see us taking territory from him, he is not going to be motivated to spend any of his finite resources on us. In Thessalonica, an incredible explosion of the gospel is happening in three weeks. Satan is there in full force. Around the world, where the gospel and the church is going like gangbusters, Satan is there. In a declining church like America, where individuals are wanting to be faithful to Jesus and the Bible, he is there. Third, overlapping interrelated thought, these all go together to reflect on, to discuss, uh, uh, to consider later. Maybe we've experienced opposition, that is persecution and affliction, and we didn't understand that that's what we were experiencing. Maybe we've experienced opposition and didn't understand it as such. I'll never forget seeing the footage on the local news in Colorado Springs of a woman walking through the grocery store with a knife in the lower left uh, portion of her back. This woman is walking, it's on the security camera, she is walking through a grocery store with a knife in her back, blood following behind her, and she is searching for Lucky Charms. I don't remember what the cereal is, but she is literally looking for cereal, As she entered the store, a man trying to rob her stabbed her with a pocket knife in the back, and the knife was still in her. She never felt it. She didn't know what happened. She wasn't aware that she was bleeding. All that she said to the police was I was getting really tired and really groggy, and I didn't know why. Attacked and unaware. Experiencing opposition and didn't even know it. Just bleeding out. Maybe we're experiencing opposition and persecution and affliction and we don't understand it as such. Okay, I wanna press into this a little more. How could it be possible that we could be encountering opposition and we don't know, know to call it that? How could it be possible that we're persecuted and afflicted, that we're being hemmed in and driven out, that, we're being, uh, that, that we're, we're, someone is working against us where we want to do things and we don't even know about it? Again, a lot could be said about this, but I will say one thing when we define opposition as its most extreme and intense form, we run the risk of experiencing opposition to a lesser degree and not understanding it as such. Uh, Stage one cancer is not stage four cancer, but it's still cancer. When we define opposition as its most extreme and intense form, we run the risk of experiencing opposition to a lesser degree and not understanding it as such. I wanna be really careful here. I, I don't wanna in any way to minimize or make light of uh, the intensity of the opposition that many of our brothers and sisters experience around the world. So I wanna be careful. You know that we're, we're very much connected to nine church plants uh, in the global cities of India. In those church plants, many of their converts, if they're baptized, they will be disowned and disinherited by their parents. That is a big deal in the caste system of India. We're also very connected to an organization called City to City Asia Pacific, and we train uh, in the summer and through FaceTime and Skype church planters in the Asia Pacific region, which includes many of the places where there is really intense persecution. This summer, I, I had the pleasure of being with and training a planter in Kuala Lumpur who has led people to the Lord and seen them executed. So I'm not trying to make light of what our brothers and sisters experience around the world. All I'm saying is if that is all we have as a definition for persecution, we might be be persecuted and not know it. The Bible speaks of a range when it comes to opposition, when it comes to persecution, when it comes to affliction. Actually, if you look at chapter two, look there with me, you can see a range in verses 14 through 16. Paul says in the second half of verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your countrymen as the Judean Christians did from the Jews. And then in verses 15 and 16, the range of things uh, that has been experienced goes everything from martyrdom uh, to being hindered in their efforts to evangelize their neighbors. And again, I think that this is a more intense range than what most of us us have experienced. I'm just trying to say the point is this, there's a range when it comes to opposition. Let me add to it and illustrate it this way. Do you remember that place in Matthew chapter 16 where where, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna suffer a lot, I'm gonna be crucified, but I'm gonna be raised to life on the third day. You remember in that section, uh, that narrative, you remember what Peter did? The guy who Jesus just said, hey, you're Peter, and on this rock, I'm gonna build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter pulls him aside and says, he rebukes him. It says in the Greek, he rebukes him and tries to keep him from thinking this, this this way about suffering and sacrifice, about dying for his people. What does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan is is a Hebrew word transliterated into the Greek that just means opponent. It just means adversary. It just means enemy. What does he say next? You're a hindrance to me. You're hindering me. That word should sound familiar. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. What does it tell us? Included in the list of opposition and adversity and being hindered, included in that list could be other followers of Jesus trying to get us to not live sacrificially and radically for Jesus. Some of you, were attacked and mocked and shamed when professors found out that you were a Christian. That's opposition. That's persecution. It's affliction. It may not be stage four, but it's at least stage one. Many of you have family and friends who try to talk you out of living more obviously and more radically for Jesus. Some of us, not me, I shouldn't have said us. I try to include myself, but this is not a great place to do it. Some of you have bosses who have made it really clear that your advancement in their company is based on doing whatever it takes for the company to succeed, regardless of what it means for others, whether that be clients or competitors. All of us have been told by our culture and by our context, it's hip to be compassionate, but you cannot be hip about the most compassionate one ever. All of us have been told by our culture and our context, it's great to be concerned about the world, but don't think about the creator of the world. We've been told, hey, look, it's cool to be, to, be, to be hip on justice. But just don't mention the God who decides what's just. All of us have been told by our culture that it is not cool to evangelize. And if we do, we will be that person who evangelizes. Nobody wants to be that person. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that the very first thing Satan does in attacking us is he gets us to like our culture. He calls it the pattern of this world. And then he just hinders us and obstructs us and affects us and afflicts us and persecutes us by our deep desire to belong, to fit in and to be approved. I I can't know what's gonna happen in our lives. You have no idea 20 years from now what's gonna happen. We have no idea if God is preaching this sermon to us because we're gonna experience something intense and something more obvious than what we experience now. I also know this, that the Bible says that everyone who is truly saved by God will grow in their desire to live a godly life. We will grow, God works in us to will and to want, to desire his good pleasure. What that means is if you're a Christian, you're gonna wanna serve Jesus more, which means Satan's gonna hinder you more. And finally, I believe we're being opposed now. I don't think we appropriate what the Bible says about our our persecution and affliction because we don't know to call it such. And so we've got to move on. The first point was by far the longest. The last two are actually rather quick. All I wanted to do in the first point is say that opposition is absolutely inevitable in the Christian's life. But now I want to look at the passage and see that any opposition is fertile ground for temptation, this is what I want you to catch in this point, whether you've identified some current, let's say stage one opposition, or, you, or you're, you, you may one day face some sort of stage four opposition. What is at stake in any and all opposition is your faith. What is at stake and what is being fought for is the extent of your faith, is the depth of your trust in God, in his promises and in his gospel. Look at the passage. Five different times in 10 verses, Paul references the Thessalonians' faith. Look at it. Paul says in chapter three, verse one, when we could bear it no longer, we, verse two, sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. In verse five, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to learn about your faith. Notice that Paul, he doesn't send Timothy to find out how many have died. He doesn't say how many have lost their jobs. He doesn't say how many are missing. He doesn't say how many are imprisoned. He just says, go find out about their faith. Go find out about their trust in God. Go inspect the state of their heart. Because what's at stake in any and all opposition is the faith of the one being persecuted. Paul says in verse six that Timothy came and literally preached the gospel of your faith to us. It's the only time in the Bible that this word for preaching the gospel is, being, is something is being preached other than Jesus. It is such incredible good news to Paul that they still have faith. In verse seven, he says, in all of our distress and affliction, so remember they're being run from city to city. He says, in all of our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. And so what I said before is that there's some ambiguity in the text as to who exactly is opposing the Thessalonians. On the one hand, Paul makes it really clear that it's their countrymen, that, it, that they're humans who are afflicting them. That's verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2. But then, Paul, because he says Satan is hindering him, two verses later, uh, many commentators believe that, that Paul is insinuating or indicating uh, that Satan is the ultimate source or the instigator of or the inspirer of the opposition uh, against the Thessalonians. But at the end of the day, it does not matter for our purposes, it doesn't matter. Once the opposition happens, whether it's sourced in the heart of another human being or the heart of Satan, once it happens, Satan is there to tempt. Any opposition is fertile ground for temptation. Look at chapter three, verse five. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse five, the end of verse five actually reads this way. It's something like this, for fear that the tempter had tempted you and somehow maybe our labor would be in vain. In other words, there's no doubt to Paul in the Greek that the tempter has tempted. The question is whether or not their faith was intact. Satan himself or Satan through his minions or Satan through tempting other humans according to their flesh is always there to tempt us to distrust God Whenever we experience opposition, opposition, regardless of from where it comes, is fertile ground for Satan's temptations. Jesus in the Gospels tells a parable known as the parable of the sower. It's the sower of seeds. And in that parable, we read that sometimes uh, the seed, the gospel, is spread and it lands on the path. And Jesus says sometimes in those instances, uh, birds come and pluck the seed off the path, indicating that Satan sometimes just comes and takes the word out of a hearer's heart. It can't sit there. It can't, it can't germinate. It can't uh, put roots down. It can't bear fruit. But Jesus also taught in that same parable that with some folks, it will appear for a while as though they believe the word. But Jesus says that in time, their lack of roots and their lack of real health and their lack of real faith will be exposed by what? Persecution and affliction. So in other words, when the opposition happens, they fall away, they wither, they don't make it. By the way, in the parable, uh, persecution is the sun rising. What can you count on every day? The sun rising. What can you count on as a believer? Persecution. The point is this. Sometimes humans oppose us in a variety of ways in our endeavors to live for Jesus and Satan recognizes that opportunity and he shows up to whisper things in our ear. Sometimes Satan directly hinders us to oppose us so that he might whisper things in our ear. God doesn't love you. God has abandoned you. You must not be good with God. God isn't powerful enough to deal with this. Things are hopeless. This isn't worth it. This is too much. If you recant now, if you renounce your faith now, you've got a little bit of time left to live a good life. Give in while you can. Or Satan could whisper to us, you should be less radical about your faith. You should stop telling people about the the gospels. Stop telling them about the good news. It doesn't look like good news to me. Satan will whisper in our ears, you must not be that valuable to God. There are probably some Christians that he really loves, but it doesn't look like you're one of them. Satan will whisper in our ears, God must be paying you back for that sin you keep committing. He's not really gracious. He doesn't really save you by grace. He makes you pay for it. You see the point? What Satan is trying to do in the opposition against us is to get us to distrust God, to not believe the gospel, to not believe the promises of God about the past, the present, and the future. It doesn't matter from where it comes. All that matters is that Satan will be there to tempt. One last thought on this text before I go to our our last point. One, One of the Bible's favorite metaphors for faith is found in verse three and verse eight. One of the Bible's favorite metaphors for faith, especially in the context of suffering, is verse three and verse eight of chapter three. Verse two, we sent Timothy to establish, strengthen, build, up, build you up in your faith. Verse three, so that no one will be moved by these afflictions. Verse eight, for now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. The word moved in verse three is only found here in the New Testament. It's the word most often used in the Greco-Roman culture for a dog wagging its tail. Paul is saying Satan through opposition is trying to shake you from your faith like a dog wags its tail. But then he says, I'm so encouraged to hear that you're standing fast in the Lord. Do you remember in James chapter one, when we found out that when we encounter trials of various kinds, what certainly includes opposition, we, we found out that the call of the believer is to stand fast is to hyperstand, is to intentionally stand. Like a child being hit by wave after wave, our call in the midst of suffering is just to stay standing. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes about the opposition we experience in the spiritual realm and the battle that is, is raging there. And four times in that passage, he just says over and over, stay standing, stay standing, stay standing. Stand up into the Lord, stand up into the promises of the gospel, stand up into the gospel. Keep your feet underneath you. Whether it's First Thessalonians or Ephesians six or James one, the Bible says that when we realize that we're under attack, the first thing we do is we stand up and stay there. And we wait for the strength and the salvation of God. Lastly, for this morning, one of the realities that we have to have faith in, that we have to stand up into, that we have to stand firm in, is point three. I'll put it on the screen. The fact that the outcome of the opposition is already established. Look with me at the end of verse 16 in chapter two. But wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul, inspired by God, Paul, an apostle of God, Paul says about the Jews persecuting the Judean Christians, he says that the wrath of God has come upon them at last for displeasing God and for opposing all mankind, that's verse 15. And so by this, Paul Paul at least means that when Jesus returns, uh, the human opponents will experience God's wrath. Paul will sometimes speak of future realities in the present tense because he's so sure it will happen. That's what he's doing here. So in Romans eight, for example, Paul talks about a future reality for you, glorification. He talks about it in the past because he's so sure it's gonna happen. In 1 Thessalonians one, actually, uh, Paul wrote that Jesus, present tense, delivers the Thessalonians from the wrath to come, future tense. Again, Jesus doesn't deliver us from the wrath, of, wrath to come until the future, but Paul is so sure that it's gonna happen, he talks about it in the present Look at the end of verse 13 in chapter three. Paul speaks to the future coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So the return of Jesus to earth at that time that's been appointed by God, when that happens, that is a huge theme in first and second Thessalonians. It's a huge theme. It's one of the reasons I chose to study through this book is because I wanted to study that reality. And when, when Paul talks about Jesus coming back in the future, he says that all of his saints will be with him. All of his holy ones will be with him. And so some commentators think he's talking about, he's talking about Christians who have died, who will return with Jesus. And, and some commentators think he's, thinks he's referencing angels or warriors, the spiritual beings that are going to come and fight for Jesus's glory and eradicate all evil from the earth. We don't really know which one he means, but both are true in the Bible. Both are true. Those who die in Christ will return with Christ. When Jesus returns, he's gonna bring his army and he is gonna deal with the ultimate enemy once and for all. The Bible teaches that right now Satan is on a short leash and he is only doing whatever Jesus allows. But the Bible also indicates that when Jesus comes back, he will in some way throw him into a bottomless pit, which means that that Satan will forever tumble away from Jesus and his people. So one of the things you have to know about the opposition, the persecution, and the affliction is that the outcome is already established. When Jesus returns, any humans who have finally and fully opposed him, who have continually displeased him, verse 15, they will experience his justice and his wrath. And the end of chapter three, the ultimate opponent, the adversary, Satan, he will be vanquished forever. Last thing I want to convey, if you're investigating the gospel, if you're investigating the Bible, I want you to know that a lot of what I've said today is really confusing and it's really complex. And I regret that, but sometimes sermons just have to be that way. I also realize that this last thing I said is probably very troubling to you and it's probably very disturbing to you. You may be saying with many of my friends, that's what I don't like about religion. Sure, I want to see Satan if he exists. I want to see him dealt with. I want to see him done away with. I want to see him vanquished. But all this talk about wrath upon those who displease God, all this talk about the holy ones being with Jesus forever, I'm not okay with that. Because I've lived long enough to know that nobody's perfect. I've, I've lived long enough to know that there's no one who's holy. I want you to know that I absolutely agree with you. I don't like religion either but I love the gospel. Religion says that bad people will be punished by God and good people will be rewarded by God. But the gospel says that some bad people will be punished by God, but other bad people by grace through Christ will be rewarded. The gospel doesn't assume that some are good and some are bad. The gospel assumes that we're all bad and some run to Jesus and find salvation in him. Do you realize that Paul, 15 to 17 years before writing 1 Thessalonians, was a persecutor of the church? Do you remember how he said in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life will be saved? Prior to that, in 1 Timothy 1, he reminded Timothy that he was, quote, a persecutor and an arrogant opponent, opponent of Jesus and his church. Did you know that the man who wrote this book, who talks about Jesus coming with his holy ones, is a man who oversaw the execution of Christians uh, uh, 15 years before? Do you realize that this man was a leader of the organization of which he speaks in chapter 2 when he talks about the, the Jews in, in Jerusalem and Judea persecuting the Christians? If Paul was a preacher of religion, he'd be done. But Paul's a communicator of the gospel. This is the gospel. Paul isn't saying, I'll be on Jesus' side when he returns because I'm holy. He's saying, I, a persecutor of the church, will be with Jesus because when he was holy, he died for my sins. The irony of ironies is when Paul talks about the Jewish persecutors of the Judean church, he's talking about the organization he used to lead. When Paul says that that they will experience wrath, he's not saying that he doesn't deserve wrath. He's saying that Jesus on the cross took his wrath and he is hiding in that. Listen, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament was one of these persecutors. It's not about who's good and who's bad. It's about which bad people run to Jesus and embrace his gospel let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for this salvation we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that there is uh, no sin that we can commit, that we can't be forgiven for, uh, removed from, and be declared righteous after. We thank you that Paul indeed was the foremost of all sinners. And as such, he, as a holy one in Christ Jesus, is an incredible proclaimer of the gospel. We thank you for this salvation that you've given to us and that you will enable us to stand in the midst of whatever we encounter in this life. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will in the future bring to mind whatever from this sermon you need to use in making us stand and making us courageous and making us more humble and making us more dependent upon you. We've endeavored to look through this book and we have found this passage that doesn't automatically resonate with us. We pray that you would help us to see your truth in it and your truth for us in it. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus.